God created a beautiful and perfect world at the dawn of time, but with the mistrust and disobedience of Adam and Eve, that world became corrupted by sin. Yet God did not abandon it, but immediately began working with his beloved humanity to bring about their ultimate redemption through his son, Jesus. And now, following Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, we wait. We wait for the coming of the new creation, when Jesus will return to fully redeem this world and restore it to what it was originally intended to be. Jesus' disciple John was given an amazing gift before the end of his life. He was allowed a vision of heaven and the end of times as we know it. Both glorious and terrible will that day be as God brings to a close this broken world. Sin dies and disappears in the light of his goodness and love. The adversary, Satan, is finally and forever defeated and cast into darkness. Jesus rallies all who have chosen to follow him through the centuries, and people from every nation and tongue bow before him with unbridled joy and gratitude. A new kingdom, a new creation, begins. The glory of God is, for the first time since before the fall, on full display for all to see. No longer are people separated from God. Now he walks among them, the light of his glory shining on all. None need look away, for the sacrifice of Jesus has made right what was wrong. Lies, jealousy, shame, lust, greed, and hate are a thing of the past. No more tears, grief, fear, or sorrow need be endured. There is only unimaginable peace and joy, delight and laughter, as the love of God fully envelops and consumes his children. Songs rise up from smiling lips. Words of praise and triumph echo through the air. Jesus sits enthroned before all the world, and it rejoices as never before. The age-old longing of God for a marriage-like covenant relationship with humanity has now come to fruition. He has become the one with his people. Great mysteries unfold and are finally understood. Ancestors of the faith mingle with newer members of God's family. And no one is in want of anything for all they have ever needed and will ever need is before them in his glory and love, the light of the world. Eden has been restored, the ancient promise is kept, and the broken relationship between God and humanity redeemed. Everything has been made new. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen? I love love living right here and now, love life, but there are times when you look around and you see so much pain, so much heartache, so much suffering, so much evil, so much violence, and um, I find in my heart something that calls out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I 
am waiting with anticipation for that day. So we've covered a lot of ground here the last five weeks, and now we're addressing the whole issue of how does it all come to a head? How does it all end? How's it, how's it consummated? Um, so we're talking about the end times here this, this morning. And the minute you mention end times, most people think about the book of Revelation. Um, it is a book that is, I think, more often than not, profoundly misunderstood, uh, leading people down a lot of rabbit trails, asking the kind of questions that the book is not designed to answer. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to first talk about what kind of literature we're dealing with as we turn to this book, what, what, what is its genre, and what's its purpose. And then I want to ask the question, uh, is the Jesus of the book of Revelation a violent Jesus? Uh, does he show up looking quite different than we find him in the Gospels? And then I want to finally uh, look at the last several chapters of Revelation where we find um, John giving us an expressionistic portrait of, of what this consummation looks like. Those last three chapters are primarily about the end of history. The rest of this book, um, I submit to you, is about events that happened in the first century, but that provide a paradigm for understanding a war that goes on throughout history. And we'll be saying uh, more about that here in, in a moment. So when we, we talk about the book of Revelation, we're, we're dealing with a, a, a genre of literature that we don't have today anymore. It's, it's called apocalyptic literature. It's a, it's a kind of literature that was prevalent from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. We find it all over the place. It's literature that um, involves a lot of symbolism. It's always important when you're reading any book of the Bible to try to understand it the way the original audience understood it. And these folks understood apocalyptic uh, literature. It's very symbolic. It uses graphic, wild images, almost surrealistic images, to make uh, an emotional impression on people to motivate them to live in a certain way. So it's very rhetorical. It's meant to, for an impact. It wasn't meant to be meticulously decoded uh, to, with a newspaper in hand trying to correlate particular symbols with particular current events. That's how we treated it when I first became a Christian. We thought we really knew who the Antichrist was. We thought we knew the, the, the ten-headed dragon was the ten European heads of the market and, and, and so on and so on. But see, this book isn't written to satisfy our sort of uh, curiosity. It's written to folks in the first century. It, it involves principles that apply throughout all of history. And we need to read it in that light. The symbolic nature of this book is profoundly important. Because if we read it in a literal way, well, first of all, it doesn't make any sense. You'll find contradictions all over the place. I remember as a new Christian being so puzzled when I came to uh, uh, Revelation 6, which says all the stars fell to the ground on earth as, as, as like figs fall to the ground when there's a strong wind. And I thought, wow, how, how is that literal? Actually, I had a preacher, uh, I'm not kidding, a preacher said one time um, from that verse, I heard him, he said, uh, don't go listen to those atheistic, uh, godless scientists who tell you that those stars are giant balls of helium out there burning to millions of times bigger than, than our earth. Nonsense. My Bible, my Bible says they're, they're, they're the size of figs and someday they're all going to fall to the ground. <laughs> and then what really got me is that you find a couple, cha- a couple chapters later, the, star, the stars are back up there. And then the third of them turn dark. And then you find a couple chapters later, they're, they're up there and they get all wiped out again, or a third get wiped out by a dragon's tail. If you take it literally, it just doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't line up. 
It's meant to be, it's meant symbolically. It's a little bit like us when we look at political cartoons. I read the newspaper every morning, and one of my favorite sections is the political cartoons. I don't care who they're making fun of, I just like to make fun of them. And, and uh, the, the humor is, is sometimes really, really good. Um, but you have to know how to interpret them. So here we've got, of course, the, the donkey, and we've got the elephant, and they're going blah, 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 blah. And the person in the middle is just saying, I wish they'd all settle this, you know, just, you know. Get it over with. And over here, you've got the, the elephant and the donkey calling each other jerk, creep, because they're blaming each other for shutting down the government. Um, and that's a pretty accurate depiction of, of kind of what's going on right now. <laughs> um, now, suppose, suppose that, that um, sometime in the future, this stopped being a, a type of literature that people are aware of. I mean, it's fairly recent. You've had political, political, political satire throughout history, but using cartoons in this way is, is fairly new. And genres sometimes come and go. So what if this genre disappeared? And someone, say, 300 years from now was, uh, you know, doing some research in history and came upon these, these uh, kind of cartoons and didn't know how they're to be interpreted. What if he interpreted it literally? He might think, wow, did, did, did donkeys and elephants really talk back in those days? Uh, did they stand upright? And how come they don't like each other? How come they're, they're arguing so much? And do people really look like that guy in the middle there, uh, you know, kind of scrawny or, you know, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Is that how people really looked? Uh, he would totally miss the point because he'd be taking literal what was meant to be symbolic. And that's exactly the case with the book of Revelation. Interpret it in a symbolic way and it is profound. Uh, take it literally and uh, you're going to find yourself... Um, misunderstanding it in a lot of serious ways. The purpose of this book is not to satisfy our contemporary morbid curiosity about how exactly the things are going to end up at the end of history, how the world's going to end. In fact, that curiosity, I submit to you, it comes close to divination. We're trying to divine the future. And the Bible, of course, is uniformly against divination. It's not written for that purpose. It's written because... There are Christians in the first century who are facing persecution, Christians who are, who are feeling the pressure to conform to the empire represented by Babylon. It, it first applies to the Roman Empire, but it applies to all empires that are under the strong influence of Satan. And so the, because they won't conform, won't engage in the practices of the empire, won't, won't uh, like genuflect before the statue of Caesar, they're being persecuted. Some are being put to death in sometimes unthinkable ways. And the message of this book is it's, it's reminding these Christians that they're in the middle of this battle. It's a battle between God and Satan, God represented by the Lamb. And, and, and the Lamb speaks truth. And Satan is the deceiver who, who, who leads all the nations astray. And so it's a battle between those who worship and use the power of Babylon, the power of the sword, as opposed to those who worship and follow the self-sacrificial lamb and trust the power of the self-sacrificial lamb. And the message of this book to these Christians facing this persecution is this. Though it may look right now like Satan is winning because you're seeing your brothers and sisters being martyred, that, what is true is that that's actually how we're winning. Uh, we are winning, as we just sang a moment ago, by the, uh, our testimony, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Uh, they, they win because they're following the Lamb, and they're laying down their lives. They win because, whereas Babylon wins by slaughtering people, the Lamb and his army win by laying down their lives for other people. 
And so it's saying, don't trust just natural appearances. Know that in the end, it is the followers of the Lamb who will overcome. And all of the graphic imagery that we find in this marvelous book is meant to inspire followers of the Lamb, Christians, to remain faithful to the ways of the Lamb and to fight the, the, the forces of the empire, not with the power of the sword, not with the power of Babylon, but rather precisely by being faithful to the way of the Lamb and loving our enemies and laying down our life for, for enemies. Now that leads to the second question I want to ask, and that is, is the Jesus in the book of Revelation fundamentally different from the Jesus that we find in the Gospels? And this is an important question to us because we, we believe that um, that Jesus' teaching about loving enemies and about turning the other cheek and never retaliating, um, that that's at the center of the gospel. He says, love like this so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Uh, is the Jesus who shows up at the end fundamentally different from that? Is he a violent Jesus? There, there was a, a well-known preacher several years ago who did an interview in this magazine, and he was railing against this uh, quote, diaper-wearing, effeminate, hippie Jesus who's all about love. He says, um, I could never worship uh, that, that kind of Jesus because I, I couldn't worship a guy I could beat up. And I only thought, dude, you, you already crucified him. <laughs> Better get over that. But he says that the Jesus I could worship is the Jesus of the book of Revelation because in Revelation, he says, Jesus shows up, he's got a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his hand and the commitment to make someone bleed. Hallelujah. Well, is that the case? Jesus shows up and he engages in a bloodbath. Um, and see, this is a main strategy that I find used for folks who don't want to accept the implications of Jesus and Paul's radical teaching about loving enemies and feeding them when they're hungry and giving them something to drink when they're thirsty and never returning evil with evil, but returning evil with good. Uh, folks who want to say that it, there's nothing incompatible about being a follower of Jesus and, and killing enemies, national enemies or personal enemies, uh, if uh, the, the need arises. And they can't find it in the Gospels, and they can't find it in Paul, so they jump to the book of Revelation. And they see that Revelation depicts Jesus engaging in this blood orgy. And so they say, well, look, at Jesus is okay with it, so we're okay with it. Is that the case? That Jesus, when he shows up, is uh, this violent Jesus who massacres everybody. If it's true, if that's true, then folks, I, I suggest we've got a problem because then Jesus has got a split personality. Um, I mean, the first time he's love your enemies, turn the other cheek, never retaliate. In fact, we've seen the last couple of weeks that the New Testament hammers home uh, that this, this, this revelation that this is what God is like. Jesus reveals the very essence of God. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and love is defined by the cross, 1 John 3, 16. So God is, in his very nature, from all eternity, cross-like love, other-oriented self-sacrificial love. So that's what God is like. But then all of a sudden, when he comes back a second time, we find him doing the opposite. What's up with that? So loving enemies is going to be slaughtering them. Um, it's, like, it's like there's, a, there's an alarm clock that goes off in heaven and when, when it's time to wrap things up and Jesus says, oh, okay, now we can put aside all that love your enemy stuff and let's go kill some people. Comes down with a sword. This is, this is Jesus, uh, the, the lover of enemies, breaking bad. This is Jesus breaking bad. That's, is that the case that uh, Jesus breaks bad? If it is, what do you do with Hebrews 13.8, which says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's the same. The Jesus that shows up in the Gospels is the true Jesus, and he doesn't change. What do we do with that? That verse alone I, I, suggests to me that 
Any interpretation that uh, leads you to the conclusion that Jesus shows up and massacres people uh, at the end is, is, is uh, something's off with that interpretation. The thing is, if you, interpret, if you interpret Revelation literally, well, you can get the impression that Jesus is breaking bad. Uh, it depicts them engaging in some violence, if you interpret literally. But we should no more interpret Revelation literally than we should interpret political cartoons literally. It's the one sure way to guarantee that you're going to miss the point. The other thing is, is this. We've got to notice how John uses violent imagery. Yeah, there's a lot of violent imagery in the book of Revelation. But if you study this carefully, here's what you'll find. And this is, I think, the most brilliant thing uh, in, in the book of Revelation. I, you know, I, I, I crashed and burned on this Revelation hysteria that I was kind of accepted when I was first a Christian. After a couple of years, I just fried on it. And I didn't like the book of Revelation. I didn't touch it for about 20 years. But it says, I began to realize what was going on here. And this is what I'm sharing right now. This book's come alive to me, and I just think it is so profound. John takes violent images that everyone's aware of, traditional violent images from the Old Testament and violent images uh, in other apocalyptic literature. And what he does is he turns them on their head. He, he subverts their meaning. He's very subversive with this. And so that the, the images now mean they're opposite. Well, so you see here, what, he takes violent images that people are aware of, images that used to motivate people to kill others, and now he's going to use them by turning them on their head to motivate people not to kill others, but to be willing to die for others. It's just brilliant. So I'm going to give three examples of how John does this. All right? The first comes out of Revelation 5. Uh, we're in the throne room here. This, is, this really sets the context for, for the, the rest of the book. And they're asking the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And that scroll is really the secret of what God is up to in world history and the secret of how God wins in world history. Who's worthy? At first, they notice a lion is there. It says this in, in verse 5, that um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, a lion is a common uh, image of the Messiah. You get it in the Old Testament. You find it in other apocalyptic uh, literature. And it's a, it's a violent image. Lions win by ripping apart their enemies. Uh, this is a triumphalistic, militant sort of Messiah. If you were just dealing with a lion, you might expect that Jesus is going to show up with a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. But the very next verse alters the meaning of this in some really interesting way because now John looks up and here's what he sees. He says, I saw a lamb, Arian. The word there actually means little lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. The word means slaughtered there. I see slaughtered little lamb. Standing in the center before the throne. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. What John is, is doing here is he's saying the one that people expected to show up and rip enemies apart like a lion turns out to be one who's already been ripped apart on behalf of others. This, 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 this lamb roars. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, from here on, we don't read about the lion anymore. It's always the lamb. And this lamb fights and this lamb roars just like a lion, but he doesn't do it in a lion way. He doesn't do it by ripping people apart. He does it by being ripped apart on behalf of people. And see, this is why he alone is worthy to open up the scroll. 
To understand the scroll, to understand what God is up to in world history, and to understand how God wins, you've got to understand that God has a lamb-like character, and he runs the universe, and he wins in a lamb-like way. Uh, if you're reading this scroll through, or the book of Revelation through lion eyes, uh, and trusting in the power of Babylon, the power of course and force, you're going to miss what God is up to. Uh, you'll think that God is losing, and that's what the deceiver is saying. Because that kind of power right now looks like it's got the upper hand. But when you trust the power of the Lamb, well, then you see that this doesn't tell the whole story. There's, there's more that's coming. So he takes this, this lion image, turns it on its head, and now the lion becomes a slaughtered little lamb. Then let's look at the image of the sword. What John does with this, this violent image of the sword. Uh, here's the opening of uh, the uh, battle. It's the final battle in, in Revelation. And uh, some have called this... I think misunderstanding what it's about, they've called this the bloodiest chapter in the Bible, Revelation 19. But here's how it opens up. It says, Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Now, this image of um, this preacher was right, on the one hand, when he said that Jesus shows up with a sword. He is right. Jesus does. But he was wrong when he said that he's got a sword in his hand. Because where is the sword that this lamb wields? It comes out of his mouth. In fact, you'll find whenever the lamb shows up with a sword, it's coming out of his mouth. Six times in the book of Revelation, the sword is put in the mouth of the lamb. Now take that literally. Try taking that literally. This is a literal thing here. Well, Jesus is going to show up at the end of the day. He's going to fight all the nations with a sword out of his mouth. It's like a Monty Python movie or something. I'll take it with no arms, no legs. I'll just give him a sword in my mouth. He sprayed his neck. Come on. It's just, it doesn't work. And if this is a literal battle, what do they do using swords anyways? Come on, this is the 21st century. It's got to happen sometime after now. And so... You know, you'd expect them to use a laser gun or, you know, bomb or something. And what are they doing riding on horses? Come on, wouldn't they be using military Humvees at least, maybe a stealth bomber or something? Folks, this isn't meant to be taken literally. By, by putting the sword in his mouth, what John is doing brilliantly is he's taking this violent symbol and he's giving a very new meaning. This lamb does warfare, not with a literal metal sword, but by speaking the truth. It's the, the sword uh, that is the word of God. That's why his name is the word of God. And what Jesus is slaying here is not people, but he's slaying lies. In fact, it's obvious that he doesn't kill people because after he smites the nations, he rules them, right? He rules them in, in his lamb-like way. In fact, these nations show up two chapters later in, in Revelation 22, and they're, they're in the kingdom of God. They're in the, the, the heavenly city. And the kings of these nations are bringing the, the glories of their nations before the throne. And they're all worshiping before the, the, the lamb. And see, folks, what's going on here is that there's this warfare between truth and, and, and deception. And when the Lamb shows up, um, he slays the deception. These nations who throughout history have, have been trusting the power of Babylon, the power of violence, thinking that you could win that way. These nations that have been involved in this merry-go-round of mindless bloodshed, cyclical violence, escalating violence from, from, from time immemorial and never learning the lesson that it doesn't work. They've been trusting in that power. But when the Lamb shows up, praise God, at the end of the age, he, he's going to slay the nations as they are under the deception of, 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 of Satan. But when, when this Lamb slays uh, with, with the 
word of truth, he doesn't kill people, he liberates people, he converts people, he's transforming the nations. So now they can see the truth about who he is. And they can see the truth about what kind of power wins in the end. And so got, this is the lamb doing his ali ali infree. Uh, ingeniously transforming the, the, the imagery of a sword. Another way he does that uh, is, is in the same passage here. We have Jesus wearing this uh, blood-stained uh, robe. The lamb shows up and he's got this robe that's been dipped in blood. Now this is a traditional uh, violent symbol. You find it in the Old Testament, you find it in other apocalyptic literature, of the warrior who's just covered in blood. And it's a symbol of victory because as the warrior comes back from battle, he's wearing the blood of all those that he has slain. But he's still standing. Yay, the victorious, bloodied warrior. A heroic image. Now John uses that imagery. Jesus is covered in blood. But notice this. The lamb is covered in blood before he ever goes into battle. He's heading into battle now. With his armies following him. The battle doesn't happen until a little, little bit later. What kind of warrior goes into battle covered in blood? Well, the kind of warrior that doesn't win by shedding the blood of others. The kind of warrior that rather wins by shedding his own blood on behalf of others. You see, this is Jesus soaked in his own blood. This is the slaughtered little lamb fighting here, folks. And, and, and so the, the symbol of him being drenched in his own blood complements the symbol of his speaking the truth about what kind of power wins in the end and what kind of power we're to trust, what kind of power characterizes God. The lamb fights the fight of the cross. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is really simply taking the cross, the victory of the cross, and applying it to the whole cosmos. This is the victory of the power of self-sacrificial love. This is the victory of the one who lays down his life for others, praise God. And his army is to fight the same way. There's another violent metaphor you find throughout the book of Revelation. The army is the church as a fighting army. And we are it. But how do we fight? It's a very weird army. Look what John does with this. We just sang about it. We overcome, not by shedding blood, not by trusting in Babylon power. We overcome by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome, John says, by following the Lamb wherever he goes, imitating the way of the Lamb. We overcome by not clinging to our life, but willing to lay down our life on behalf of others. We overcome when we are martyred. That's one of the themes of, of the book of Revelation, because that's how Jesus overcame. Yes, it's a violent metaphor, but look closely and you'll find that John makes it, it has the opposite meaning that it has when it's applied in violent ways, praise God. We're to be a people who look like the lamb and love like the lamb and serve like the lamb by sacrificing like the lamb sacrificed. And we are doing warfare against Babylon when we do it. We're doing warfare against the principalities and powers. We're resisting the deception of Satan that says, put your trust in Babylon power and the power of the sword. That's what's going to win. No, we resist that. We say we will remain faithful even if we suffer at the hands of Babylon's sword. We know that that's exactly how we win and how we overcome and at the end of the day, that, is, that kind of love is what's going to define every square inch of the cosmos. And anything inconsistent with it, well, that's what will be done away with, praise God. So you see how J- J- John ingeniously takes this violent lion, turns him into this self-sacrificial lamb, and takes a violent sword, but makes it, uh, speaking the word of truth that liberates people, and takes this violent blood-soaked garment metaphor, but makes it a symbol of self-sacrificial love, and takes this, this uh, image of an army, but turns him into an army of lovers. It's just ingenious. But if you're reading this book literally... Well, those who read it literally come to the exact opposite conclusion of what John intended. 
They grab hold of the violent symbols, but they don't notice the way John turns them on their head to make them mean they're opposite. Uh, we've got to approach it for the kind of literature it is, and when we do, we find that it's just ingenious, the way that he transforms all of these uh, various symbols. The Jesus in the book of Revelation is just as cross-centered and just as cross-like as the Jesus of the gospel. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus we know in the gospel and the Jesus that we live for right now is the Jesus that will overcome in the end, praise God. And we were overcome with him when we take on his character. We don't know the details of how it's going to happen, but God's going to win the same way he's been winning right now, and that's through the power of the cross. The final thing is let's uh, see what John says in these last three chapters about the, the summing up of the age, the culmination of the age. What does Revelation have to say about this? John's given a vision, an expressionistic portrait of what it looks like when, when uh, this whole thing is said and done. I only have time to deal with one passage, and I'll draw two quick points out of this passage. It's, it's Revelation 21. And John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Interesting. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Try taking that literally. How do you have a city that's dressed like a bride for her husband? And then it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, for there will be no, long, no, no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Praise God. Uh, First John says there is no longer any sea. Now, I don't think God's got a thing against oceans or big lakes. He's not talking about H2O here, folks. I, I, I'm hoping that the kingdom of God is not a desert without you know, any water. He's not talking about H2O. The sea, throughout the Old Testament, I, I talk about this a lot in my book, God at War. The sea, throughout the Old Testament, is a metaphor for spiritual forces, cosmic forces that, that oppose God. So you find over and over again uh, uh, phrases like God uh, set boundaries beyond which the sea could pass. Uh, God had to rebuke the sea. Uh, God had to trample on the sea. Uh, you know, the, the seas had to retreat out of fear of God and so on and so on. It's, it's a metaphor of chaos, forces of chaos, forces of destruction. And so when John says that there's no more sea, what he's saying is that there's no more Satan, no more principalities and powers, no more demonic entities. And the kingdom finally comes in fullness. And that's why he can say there'll be no more pain, and mourning, and death. Because all pain, mourning, and death ultimately is a result of the fact that this present world right now is oppressed by these forces of destruction. The thief who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy that Jesus talks about in John 10. He, he, he's been reigning on this earth since we surrendered it over to him. We know from the rest of scripture that there was, even before human beings came on the scene, this angelic rebellion. Headed up by one that we've come to call Lucifer, who became Satan, the, advers the adversary. And, uh, and then we were, our primordial parents were deceived and brought into uh, their rebellion. We were co-opted into their civil war against God. And the minute we did this, we opened up the floodgates for these principalities and powers to now exercise their destructive reign on this earth, giving them the authority that we were supposed to have. And so now everything has been tainted 
by the influence of these corrupting forces. It's not just human beings who are affected by our fall. It's, 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 it's the entire earth, the entire cosmos has been under the influence of these cosmic powers. That's why Paul says that the whole creation has been subjected to futility and frustration and now groans like a woman in labor for the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation isn't right right now. It's not operating the way it was supposed to operate. You can still see the glory of God in it, but it's been tainted. You see a lot that is not consistent with the glory of God. And so humans have been suffering at the hands of the very nature that we were supposed to be able to reign over and reflect God's loving character over. And, 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 and so we, we, we suffer under tornadoes and hurricanes and mudslides and diseases and blindness and deformities and, and all the rest. So there's a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering. But praise God, John is telling us, as, he, as he's getting this vision of the coming kingdom, there's no more sea. Praise God. No more chaos. No more destructive influence here. All forces that oppose God will be done away with. All evil will be done away with. All sin will be done away with. All rebellion will be done away with. Praise God. So there'll now be no more death and there'll be no more frustration, no more futility, no more decay, no more aging. Praise God. No, no, more, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more blindness, no more deformities. Praise God. No more kids coming down. With, with cancer, and all wars will cease, praise God. Those nations are going to be converted. All guns will be laid down, done away with, hallelujah. The deception that if we only had a little few more guns, well, then we'd, we'd, we'd be safe. If we only killed a few more bad guys, well, then we'd win. That deception will be done away with once and for all, praise God. So there'll be no more violence, no more hatred, no more hostility, no more nations rising up against nations. But every square inch of the cosmos will be defined by the love of God. That's what we've been revealed in Jesus Christ. But, Amen. But that, that, isn't, that isn't even the best news. That's not even the best news. The most beautiful part of what John's seeing here, it's, it's not what is missing in the kingdom, though that is good news. What's missing is none of that violence, none of that destruction. But the best news is what is present there, and what is present there is, is God. He says God will make his dwelling among his people. Hallelujah. God will make his dwelling among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Uh, I said several weeks ago that the entire creation was created as, a, as an expression of God's perfect love. It's triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole creation expresses that love, was created uh, to, to participate in that love. God wants to share himself with, with, with people and share himself with people in a way that, 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 that mirrors and participates in the triune love that he is. He wants his relationship with us to be so intimate, so profound, that it mirrors and participates in the perfectly united fellowship of the, of the triune God. It's a marriage-like kind of covenant, we've said. Um, and, and so God wants a relationship where he is totally poured out towards us and we are totally poured out to him and he is in us and we are in him. And that's been his longing throughout the ages. And what we're seeing here is the consummation of this, uh, of this marriage. You see, when Jesus came, as we mentioned several weeks ago, and died on the cross, here we're seeing the fulfillment of this marriage covenant where, where Jesus fulfilled both God's side of the covenant and the human side of the covenant. He's fully God and fully human. And he suffered the death consequences of our covenant breaking so as to remove all obstacles that could possibly impede our having a relationship with him. So the cross is God's marriage proposal to us. Here on the cross, God is saying, will you marry me? Uh, this, is, this is why he created the world. Will you marry me? He's revealing who he is. Here we see the perfect expression of, of who God is. He's saying, here's who I am, and I already know who you are. I want to marry you. What remains is for us to say, I do. 
I do. And we do that by surrendering our life to him. We're saying, I will be part of the bride. At that moment, we are legally married to Jesus Christ. We're betrothed to Jesus Christ. But remember, in Jewish culture, there was an interval of time between when a couple was betrothed to each other, legally married, and when they consummated that, when they had a wedding and then consummated that marriage and began their life together. And during that time, they would prepare themselves for their life together. The bride would make herself ready. We are in that betrothal period right now. We are betrothed to Christ when we're surrendered to him, and he's gone to prepare a place for us as first century Jewish husbands often did. That's the place that he brings back to us in the scene that John is seeing here, as he's bringing the heavenly city down here that's adorned as a bride. Um, and so John is here giving us a picture of, the, of what that consummation will look like. This is what we're looking forward to, the way first century brides look forward to the husband returning, and they could then have a wedding and, and consummate the marriage and begin their, 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 their life together. John's showing us here what it is like. It was announced in chapter 19 when they, they said, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. What John is saying here is that what's going to characterize the eternal, never-ending kingdom is, is this union of God and humanity. That is like the one-flesh relationship of a husband and wife. The, the ecstasy of the one-flesh relationship of a husband and wife is a faint, vague approximation, a little pointer to the direction of the ecstasy that we'll enjoy as God is in us and we are in God throughout all of eternity. And that sounds pretty good to me. I don't mind telling you. Um, no, it means that we will, folks, as God, for God to make his dwelling with us, it means that, that the ecstasy of the eternal kingdom will be the ecstasy that God has just being God, unsurpassable ecstasy of God being God he shares with us. God's love is our love and his joy is our joy. All that he has by nature, he gives to us by grace. And in the kingdom, we'll experience it for all eternity, praise God. Not stop for all eternity. That's why it can never get boring. It can never grow old. It will be new every moment. It's an unsurpassable ecstasy. We can't begin to fathom what this is like. We can just get a vague picture of it. But it means that, at the very least, all the longings of our heart, all the aches of our heart, the sense of alienation and emptiness, that we so often have in this present uh, world order. When that old order is passed away and we are with God and God is with us, those longings shall be replaced by an abundance of overflowing life that will never end, praise God. And it means the greatest dreams you've ever dreamed will be rendered laughable. <laughs> They'll fall short of the reality that we have when we are sharing in the consummated life of, of God. When, when God's longing throughout history for a, for a bride is finally consummated and fulfilled, all those dreams will be rendered laughable. And the greatest beauty you've ever seen, the greatest beauty you've ever imagined, will be rendered utterly, utterly, utterly insignificant when you behold the beauty of the true God, the Lamb-like God, praise God, and, and, and the beauty of the relationship that He has with us. Praise God. It, eye hasn't seen, the ear hasn't heard, it's never entered into the imagination of a human being the things which God has in store for those who love Him. But you know, here's the thing, it's, it does good, it does good to, to, to focus on that sometimes. You don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, but sometimes it's, it's good to be heavenly minded and to, and to imagine that. Knowing that you can't imagine that, try to imagine that. Ask the Spirit to give you a picture of the, most, the greatest beauty you could ever fathom. And the reason that's important is this. For one thing, in this world we have trials, you know that. You, you go through times where you, 
you enter tragedy. A loved one comes down with cancer. You, you lose a child or you find out yourself that you've got some disease. You're no longer going to be able to walk or whatever. It's the litany of pains we go through in this world is, is endless. And, and those things can be unbearable unless you remind yourself vividly, imaginatively, that this world is but for a present moment. It's a flicker, it's a flicker of a flame. And get your eye on the, 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 the reality of what will be unending. And the, the bigger your heaven is, the smaller the pains of this world are. It's also important because Scripture tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. For the joy that was set before him. He saw what this accomplished. And so while the cross, of course, wasn't joyful, it was joy that motivated him to go to the cross. So also, we are called to fight like the lamb fights. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to suffering. Uh, whether it's suffering because we don't go the way of the empire and they persecute us, or whether it's suffering just because we're called to manifest God's generous character to all people and we don't hoard our resources, we share them in outrageous ways, and we live far below the standard that, that we could live. Um, whatever the suffering looks like, this is what we're called to, to look like the lamb. But see, if, if, if we don't have an eternal perspective on things, and that's not real to us, well then, that feels like a great sacrifice. Whereas if we have a vivid, real, imaginative picture of, of our eternal life with God, the more vivid and real that is, the smaller this life seems, so the less we cling to it. And if we're getting a true picture of the beauty of God and the beauty of the eternal kingdom, well, then this life becomes nothing. It's something we love it, we enjoy it while it's here, but we don't cling to any of it. To lose it is a small thing. Certainly to, to live in half the house you could live in is a small thing. Or to cut down on a car is a small thing. If it's going to manifest the character of God to others. But see, if we don't have, if we have only a vague hope, it's not really real to us, well, then this life feels like it's all there is. So we cling. That's why worldlings cling to everything. This might be all there is. They may believe that there's more, but it's not real to them. And so they cling. And giving up anything feels painful. We want to have our best life now. We want to grab it all now. Folks, spend some time envisioning the glory that God has in store for us. And just know that however glorious it is, you're not even close. The best you can do is move in the right direction. Um, but enjoy that, envision it, dream it, and, uh, and let that create a joy in you that will then empower you to live the cruciform life, which is what we're called to do. Knowing that the Lamb's way of life leads to that. That's the joy. This way of life, this relationship, as He pours His character into us and we manifest His self-sacrificial love, it leads to that joy. As you envision that, spend time envisioning that, then ask the question, Lord, uh, is my life lamb-like? Uh, do, is my life cross-like? What maybe would you have me to sacrifice? What am I supposed to lay down? It's all yours. Uh, what do you want me to enjoy? And what do you want me to lay down? And submit it to him. With your eye on the, the joy that, that, that you have ahead of you, give it all up to him. Because it's all small stuff. This life is so small. It's so infinitesimally small compared to eternity. It's a flicker of the flame, just dust in the wind. It's just gone. Don't cling to it. Let it go. With your eyes on heaven, let it go. Submit it all to God. And then follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Follow God however He leads. Uh, give up whatever He tells you to give up. Uh, it will just contribute to your joy in the long run. That is the call of the kingdom. When, it's, when the story wraps up, it's, it just applies the truth 
that's already been done on the cross to the whole cosmos. Our job is to be applying that truth to our lives right here and right now. And living a cross-like life. Amen. Amen. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. Get a vision. All right. Um, would you stand? And I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. If you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. That's what they're here for. I just want to send us out with this benediction. Uh, Father, give us your lamb character. Uh, help us to leave this place with a commitment to follow the lamb. Uh, to, God, give us a vision of the glory that awaits us that makes everything very, very small. Everything here and now very, very small. And help us, Lord, to live our life with open palms, clinging to nothing, and with a view to uh, just love the way you love, serve the way you serve, bleed the way you bleed, because that is the kingdom, and that's the power that overcomes in the end. In Jesus' name, and all of the lambs said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world like lambs.